Hi, and welcome to the Everywhere podcast. We're a global community of founders and operators who've come together to support the next generation of builders. So the premise of the podcast is just that, founders interviewing other founders about the trials and tribulations of building a company. Hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, welcome. I'm Anna Barber. I'm a partner at M13, a member of the fund community and a former founder and entrepreneur myself. M13 is a consumer-focused Series A venture fund based in Los Angeles, and I'm very excited to be here today in conversation with Steve Siegel. Awesome. I am Steve Siegel. I'm the co-founder of Flossie. Uh, We are reimagining the way people find a dentist and pay for dental care. Uh, Super excited to be here to talk to you, Anna. Love the fun. Was so excited to have you guys in my first round of financing and just excited to talk more. Fantastic. So let's start with just an overview of Flossy. Tell us about what you're building now. Absolutely. So I think at its core, what Flossy really does is help people find a great dentist and save a bunch of money. And I think, you know, like everyone, no one likes going to the dentist. And I think some of the pain points are it's expensive, it can hurt, I don't want them to rip me off. So what we looked at, my partner and I, is there's 75 million of the people in this country that have no dental coverage. We spend over 160 billion a year on dental care, but there's been no real innovation in the way we find a dentist and the way we pay for care. So what Flossy has created is really the first digital marketplace that curates all of these top end dentists. We do all the upfront negotiations for pricing, and then we make it transparent for you on your side when you choose a dentist. And I think in healthcare, it's one of the one industries where you kind of never know what you're going to pay. You know, you end up going to the doctor, you get your bill afterwards, and one of three things happen. You don't owe anything because of insurance, you owe a little bit, or you owe more. And so what we want to do is take that kind of opaqueness out of healthcare, bring it forward to the consumer, and help them have a great experience at the dentist. So how did you land on dental? I mean, you've been a founder in healthcare for a long time. You've had um, prior success with SilverSheet, you know, really embedded in the healthcare innovation field. Like, like why dental? How did you come up with this concept? Yeah. So my partner and I, when we sold our last business about four and a half years ago uh, to AMN Healthcare, a big public healthcare staffing firm, uh, we were there for a year during the earnout. And I think afterwards, we're really thinking about big areas of healthcare that had a lot of spend that didn't have a lot of technology innovation. And we kept coming back to dental. And I think the thing about dental that's really interesting is for such a big spend category, if you look at like travel or restaurants, all these things have been brought online. Like you wouldn't imagine booking all of your flights now over the phone and asking them for availability. You couldn't imagine calling every single restaurant to try to find a reservation as well. But 85% of dental appointments are still made over the phone. And so we looked at with dental is it's massive spend. And then how are people paying for it? And so traditional health insurance doesn't cover it. Traditional Medicare doesn't cover it. And so what we saw is there's just big pockets of people paying 100% for their dental care. And so really, as we looked at innovating in dental, we kind of broke dental into three categories. One was, do we kind of reimagine like the actual dental office itself? There's a few startups out there like 10, which are kind of creating these one medical, almost like Instagrammable type offices. And what we saw is it's a great experience, but it never really bent the cost curve and the way people pay for care. The second is we looked at ancillary products. So like if you've seen like Quip on the toothbrush or Smile Direct on the aligners, and we felt like it was addressing one part of oral health, but not your overall oral health. And so then the third thing we looked at is, really dental insurance. And like, how do people actually pay for their dental care? 
And what we saw is dental insurance, first of all, it's not regulated like real insurance. So the Department of Insurance doesn't regulate it. There's no national regulation. And it really acts much more like a prepaid benefit where you pay in, your policies are capped, you're getting some discounts on your preventative care, but anything expensive takes six to 12 months uh, for you to get that covered. But the one thing they do really well is because they have such patient saturation in an area, there's so many people with dental insurance, they're able to negotiate lower fees that they pay the dentist. And so our big aha moment was, well, what if we become that front-end customer acquisition for the dentist? And dentists are usually in so many networks because if you've ever done traditional finding a doctor or dentist, you type in your zip code, they give you a roster, it looks like a menu. You maybe don't get past the first page, you Google or Yelp a few people, and then you call for an appointment. And so that dentist gets a free customer. So what we said is, in exchange for being that acquisition and providing them with a free customer, give us those same in-network discounts that you would traditionally pass on to the carriers and let us use our technology to connect you with patients, sit in the payment flow and make it kind of a free offering. So at its core, we looked at areas with big spend, not a lot of innovation and not a lot of traditional coverage models. And that's really the way we kind of looked at Flossy. That's so interesting. So it sounds like you came up with really a new business model that didn't exist and that no one else is pursuing in your field. And you really did that by spending enough time in the industry and kind of learning, you know, about how customers are acquired. I'm curious, you know, people hate going to the dentist. People avoid going to the dentist. Like how has that resistance to going to the dentist affected the way that you're taking this to market? Yeah. And and, and to add another layer, like give it COVID as well, which made it even more terrifying. Oh yeah. You guys started this right, you know, during COVID. So we closed our seed round March 13th, 2020. And if you guys remember that day, that was the day that Trump declared a national emergency. And by the way, five days later, Newsom shut down dental offices. So now we have this new dental startup, but there's no dental offices. And now we have this new virus, which I had no idea what the extent would be of this, but I knew people were terrified to go to the dentist now even more. So actually the first thing we did at at Flossy, and then then I'll touch about how we kind of helped the consumer it is, the first 50,000 we ever spent was actually on SurveyMonkey. And we just talked to thousands and thousands of dentists and thousands of consumers because like the world has just changed overnight, you know? And like, what were the things that were important to dentists? What were the things that were important to consumers? And so the most important thing we saw for consumers, and we thought it would be asynchronous booking, booking from your mobile phone, all these things, it was price transparency. And the reason people are frustrated going to the dentist outside of the fear of the actual procedures is, there's all these surprise billing because the coverage models aren't great. And so if you read a lot of the negative reviews around going to a dentist, outside of maybe the office being dirty or I had to wait or the front office wasn't nice, it's really like, I didn't realize this procedure was gonna cost me this much. When I got done and I sent in my insurance and I still owed two or $3,000, that was that negative experience with the dentist. So what we said is, all right, let's eliminate that. Let's put the transparency up front So dental, very different than other healthcare, it's all what's called fee for service, which means everything is almost billed like a menu. There's none of this where you're going to go there and say, hey, I wonder what that additional cost or what they're going to cover. It's all transparent. So we said, great, why don't you just put it on the front end? Why don't we just show people these ranges in the front end? And then also we do the legwork where we show you what it is relative to retail pricing in your area. So I think the big way we got consumers comfortable to even go is saying, listen, we're gonna help you find a great dentist that's not gonna rip you off. We'll do that legwork. And you have to be four stars in Google Health Grades or Yelp. 
We'll do all the price negotiations and we'll show it to you up front relative to everyone else. So that's been the big way for us to kind of get people over the hump and say, all right, if I am going to have to go to the dentist, and most people go to the dentist, it's reactionary when there's an issue. So that's usually when it's the most expensive, when I have to pay and I need a root canal. Why not get you those discounts, show you how much it's going to cost up front, and then be able to deliver you to like a five-star dentist within a day or two. So you guys started, interestingly, you're in California, you're in LA, um, part of the Fund LA, but you decided to launch in Arizona. Can you talk about that a little bit like, and sort of why you made that choice and kind of what other founders might be able to learn in terms of finding the right market to, to launch a product in? Absolutely. So we did tons and tons and tons of, of A-B testing, you know, just driving people even to landing pages with different, you know, propositions before we went live. You know, is it a free whitening, a free exam, different areas, income demographics, age demographics. And so Arizona is pretty unique. And I always talk about Phoenix, and this is usually like nobody realizes this. So Phoenix is the fifth largest city in the U.S., Right. And so after New York, LA, Chicago, and Houston, it's Phoenix. So you have tons okay, and tons of Okay. I had no density. idea. That is shocking to me. Nobody, nobody, every time I say this, everyone thinks it's like a top 20, but it's really the top five city in the US. And so also there's a high senior population. So Medicare doesn't cover dentals. We wanted to go after them. And then if you remember COVID, like there was really high migration. And so Phoenix became one of these like tier cities that people went to. So there's a high amount of self-employed freelance and also people who didn't have continuity with the dentist moving to a new area. So all of these things like kind of played out and obviously being LA, it was only an hour away time zone wise. We could get there really easily, you know, to, to see the dentist. And then we're regulated as what's called a dental discount plan. And every state has different regulations. Arizona is one of the easier ones to get going. So as you think about it, as a founder, as you're like testing initial product market fit, getting something out into the market, like as little friction as possible. And it hit kind of all the other check marks that we want. And so that's the way we kind of looked at that market. Also, we're a consumer. We looked at like CPCs in all the areas. There's a lot of other metrics we overlaid as we started to test. But like that's really the way between the seniors, the income demographics, the freelance, the high migration, the regulation, and the proximity to California. So what's so interesting about this conversation is like all of your decisions are so data driven, right? So from the business models to like where you decided to learn, you know, launch. And, you know, we've been talking about dental care for like 15 minutes and like, you're so incredibly excited about it. I mean, where does that come from? Like, what is like sort of driving you in this? Is it about impact? Is it your curiosity? Like, where does your motivation as a founder come from? Yeah, it's mission driven. You know, I think, you know, Miles, my co-founder is a physician by training, even though we've both been in the tech industry. And I think like, you know, with Silversheet, even though we were a software that we sold to hospitals like Cedars here in LA and it was an investor, it was really about better patient care started with doctors spending less time on paperwork. So we were like innovating in that and seeing the impact. Here, it's like, this is a completely mission driven. Like we are focused on making impact really on like the low to medium income or like the self-employed freelance gig worker. Like we have so many gig workers, small businesses, construction, beauticians. And then the other spectrum, like our patient demographic is bimodal. We have that demographic and then the seniors, right? And there's so many things out there, especially in tech that are not geared towards seniors, right? And it's like, here's an innovation that's actually geared towards helping seniors. 
so we were super excited to build upon that. So like when we saw a big white space, and I always remember you and I having a conversation, you guys first invested, you talked about the different archetypes of these founders, right? And one oh, of them yeah. was like that M- the MBA of the white space, right? And like, we kind of had the domain expert, but we saw this giant white space in dental, right? And it was like, all right, there's so many groups of people that we can go help. And it very much aligned with like the missions of Miles and I. And I think like, listen, at this point in our career, like we've been fortunate to have success and build, like we wanted to get up and work in, on something we were passionate about. And like, we just caught, kept coming back to this thing with dental and saying like, there's just so much room for us to improve here. It's funny that you mentioned that conversation that we had because I've always been kind of dismissive a little bit of those like MBA founders. It's like, oh, let me just look for a market white space and I don't really care what it is. I just want to find an opening in the market and be really clinical about it. And I've always thought like, that's not filled with a lot of customer focus. And so I do think you have that data-driven approach, but you also have the other archetype, which is the empath, which is really caring about the customer, right? And this construct actually is something that Jenny and I came up with together, where there are these four archetypes, but that's like a conversation for another day. (laughs) It's interesting that you kind of put yourself in that category um, because you do have that quality. So you've had this crazy journey with Flossie because you launched like a product in possibly the worst category right at the beginning of COVID. And then you had to raise a series A, like right as the funding market, like kind of bottomed out. So talk a little bit about how you navigated through that. Yeah. I always tell other founders that like, we missed the greatest run up in venture capital history. So like, if you look at the second half of 2020 through Q1 of 2022, like it was probably the most I don't know, frenzy I've ever seen in all of venture capital. And I think the pro and the con was, listen, there were a lot of people raising there and they raised a lot of money and like now they're in very difficult situations. I think for us, we're in a really favorable dis- uh, situation, as difficult as it was. We didn't raise at a valuation. We didn't raise at a time where the expectations were top line growth, will deficit finance that growth. And like, these are the metrics we care about. And those things shifted rather quickly in 2022. So yeah, so we closed our seed in March of 2020, and then we went out to market kind of May of 2022. And you know, the one thing I'll say is you could feel the later stage already starting to get hit, and then it was kind of trickling down to the early stages. So as we're fundraising, you can kind of see like the cracks in the market on the earlier stage. But I also think given what we were solving for, there's still plenty of money for businesses. Like we're a digital marketplace. We're a super high gross margin, massive TAM experienced team. And like, I think if you are going to place bets in these types of environment, it's like, these are kind of the areas that you want to do it. And so we were very fortunate, you know, like our early investors, slow, APC, clock tower, all came in pro rata. We've had relationships. Like once we were able to get things together, it was actually pretty smooth. Um, But I'd say a lot of that came from like, you you talk about all the time, developing the relationships with these different investors when you're not, you know, when you're not raising. And I think it became even more important during this time, but it was really interesting. You know, I think for us, like as soon as we had things coming along, like speed to close, really have a clear vision on what we're going to do with it, be able to reset our expectations of how we're going to grow the business and going for extremely positive unit economics, high gross margins, and actually having models that show getting the profitability were like extremely important, different than even the model we had built out six months ago, where it's like, all right, here's the ARR number we need to get to. We just need to continue to grow. And if we're even within striking distance of positive unit economics, you'll get credit. And I don't think you get credit anymore in this market, especially going forward. So I would say we picked probably the most challenging, but now 
you know, we sit in a situation where we don't have to come to market, where I feel like the people who raised in 21, the second half of this year and beginning of next year, there's a bunch of people who are going to have to come to market and we can just continue to be heads down and kind of grow our business. Like what I'm hearing a lot of is that you have what I call strong opinions loosely held. Like you're willing to put a stake in the ground, but then you're also willing to kind of move off of that if you get new information. So this example of like being focused on just growing ARR and then shifting that quickly, which is really what was required of founders during like the last six to nine months is being able to just understand that the goalposts had moved and then being able to kind of reset your plan and kind of reformulate how you're presenting the business and how you're thinking about it. Totally. And my, you know, Miles and I, so Miles was a venture back founder in 08. So he went through it. I was an investment banker at Bear in New York in 08 when it collapsed. Right. And so we both saw like how quickly things can turn on their head. Like, you know, Bear collapsed over a weekend and Miles is like, listen, you know, we were signing contracts and doing deals. And then, you know, 2008 happened, you know, and things were put on hold and we had to kind of change and, and figure out how we're going to preserve the business and, and build out from here. And I think we started to see this very early and we started to have conversations with our investors too, who are very close with the later stage guys, the people who'd be doing our, our rounds. And so we just looked at each other and we said, listen, we need to be proactive about this. We need to be realistic. And we need to say like, all right, here's what it's really gonna take for us to get to this next inflection point and unlock the future financings, but knowing that like they could be years away or they could not happen again. And I think once we kind of were in line with that and we shared that message internally, like that's what people wanted to see. Like we made those decisions in you know May of 2022 where you still feel like people were waiting and out and still kind of in trouble now. So yeah, I think having gone through that before and being able to convey that gave people a lot of conviction to invest during that time with us. I think that's so important. You know, I was an operator in 99, so I went through that, right? And then I opened a retail store in June 2008. That was oh, my wow. second startup, <laughs> right? And so then I saw the economy like kind of, you know, totally change and I was locked into a lease and it was but I think those of us who went through those cycles and saw both that the economy does recover and it's possible to get through them, but also that you have to radically shift your mindset in order to do that. I think that is a an experience that is incredibly valuable to what we're going through now that allows you to kind of navigate more successfully and frankly, allows investors to be that much more confident that you're going to be able to kind of, you know, take the company forward. A hundred percent. And the one thing I always say to founders, especially not just here in LA all over, it's like, there's usually a disconnect when there's a correction between founders like holding on to valuations or expectations. And I was like, you need to shift now. Like it's already happened. It's not like it's happening. Like the correction, the shift has happened. And as soon as you can come to terms with that and realize like what I need to go and do going forward, expectations from a fundraise or financing, how much I need, like that's what I've always told people is like they're hanging on to some of these you know fantasies. I was like, it's changed and it may cycle back, but like you'd rather be conservative and just say, okay, like if it does cycle back and things are on the upswing, we're just in a better position. So that's been the biggest thing I've heard from people is like hanging on to valuations or expectations when like really things moved like this, even in 2022, moved faster than anything I've ever seen. Like the interest rate movement, we've never seen anything like this in our lifetime, right? And with that, obviously it hits high growth, you know, high cash burn companies. And so the more people really understand those dynamics, I think the easier it is for them to like come to terms and be able to kind of find a path forward. I think that's very well put. 
I think it's a tough message for investors to deliver. So I have trouble saying that in my current role as an investor because founders just hear it as like, oh, you're trying to use this as a way to getting a lower valuation, right? But I'm I'm but what you said is the market's already changed. The quicker you can adjust your mindset and accept that, right? The better off you're gonna be. And I think that's absolutely yeah. right. And I think it's not just sort of a normal correction. What we're seeing is we were in an abnormal bubble. And now we're having a correction, you know, prob, you know, if you look at the data, it's sort of valuations now are resets to sort of what they were in 2019. It's not like they've gone below that, right? All we're doing is we've, we've corrected the bubble, right? And people, yeah. you know, and people need to, to understand. And I agree with you, there's this divergence between the founders that have gotten that, right? And adjusted to the new reality and are moving forward and the ones that are still holding on to, you know, wanting to, wanting to see how, how, how it was. You know, with your last company, Silver Sheet, corporate venture capital was really important and corporate partnerships were just a huge part of the business. How do you see that with Flossie playing out, you know, as you continue to grow? Exact same way. So like when we were, you know, doing Silver Sheet, like we were a SaaS business and this is like when Slack and these other ones were growing. And like as a SaaS company, we were measured against some of these like outliers that were in there. And like especially in healthcare where it's like they wanted, you know, hyper local growth in a traditionally like stagnant industry. And especially being like usually in SaaS, like you're selling ahead of the product, you're a tiny startup, like how do you kind of hack that? And so corporate venture capital, like taking Cedars money. So Cedars venture arm is called Summation Health at the time. It was a JV between Memorial Care in Long Beach and then Cedars here gave us validation, both as saying we're an investor, but then also like to fast track getting a pilot or deal with them and like having them call their counterparts. So having like Darren Dworkin, the CIO of Cedars, call his counterpoint counterparts at Northwell or NYU or these big institutions, like that was the way we got in front of these people, right? When you're a small startup, it's to say like, all right, they're not only investor and they're a client, like that's the validation if you can get as, as a startup. And also the return profile is different, right? They may, they, they're a little bit value, they're not as valuation sensitive. A lot of times it's off balance sheet. And it's really like, do you solve a pain point internally for our company or for our patients or our members, right? And if you do, and we can get a return and maybe even like attract better people to the Cedars Techstars Accelerator and be able to get better portfolio companies because they can see the value that we bring along the cycle, like that's super helpful. So obviously at the Silver Sheet was extremely helpful. Same thing here. We haven't taken any corporate money, but what I could see going forward is like the way I think our business scales too is not just direct to consumer, but also big groups of people who kind of touch the individuals that we service. So, you know, like the senior population. So there's a lot of people who work with seniors in the Medicare space. So like they are going to be great kind of B2B to C partners and even the carriers themselves, you know, like as we think about distribution and like their broker force, we could be a really unique offering as a differentiator to them as well. And so for us, like, you know, as we continue to scale the business, thinking about taking money from them and having them as partners, I think will be extremely helpful. I always like starting with kind of the commercial pilot aspect of it. And it usually leads into a great investment or an acquisition. But I think for us, especially in healthcare, where things are very relationship driven, things can be very slow. It was the only way we were, we have been able to kind of really hack our way to significant growth. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You also invest in other companies, Steve. So, you know, and this isn't a huge part of your, you know, activity stack, but you do it. How do you decide what other founders to back? Like, what do you look for in a founder? Yeah, I mean, great founders. So we focused a lot on healthcare, right? 
But in this, you know, we're really a digital marketplace and we're consumer and we're healthcare. So as we thought about founders who are investors in Flossie, you know, we have people who have built big companies in healthcare. So Aaron Bali from Carbon Health, Zach Weinberg from Flatiron Health, people who have built great marketplaces. So um, Tracy from TradeZ, Eddie Liu from Goat, and then people who have done direct to consumer. So like the FabFitFun guys, um, we've done Modern Animal on the clinic side. So having a great network of founders who have built businesses both in consumer and healthcare and marketplaces really touch upon all the different things that Flossie does. And we can have these very candid conversations like we're having now that are a little bit different than having them with VCs or your current investors, where it's like, what are you guys seeing? What are you guys hearing? And I think you can be a little bit more vulnerable with your founder friends and just be like, this isn't working. This is working. You know, what do you think about that? So having founders as investors in us has been, I mean, extremely important. And on the flip side, places where we have great founder relationships where they're building new companies. Uh, like I mentioned Aaron. So we've been, you know, longtime investors in Carbon Health and places where we in Modern Animal and Steve, like places where we know the founders. We we I almost don't care what they're doing, but when we get excited about what they're building, like, you know, Miles and I had big kind of theses in healthcare. And when we're thinking about businesses, and we looked at either should we build the business there or who there is building something great. And we had ideas around tech-enabled urgent care and primary care, and we saw what Carbon was doing. We wanted to do something in the senior space. Obviously, Flossie touches on that, but we're investors in honor, and Seth is a friend. We looked at, obviously, in the pet space, we thought was big, and we did modern animals. So it's really, we have thesis of different parts of healthcare we get excited about. And then it's really just a lot of the founder relationships. But we've been super fortunate to be able to just have a great network of them. And then obviously, I don't think there's anything better than founders invested in founders. You know, So the ones who invested in us and we've invested in them, it's just been fantastic. Well, I mean, that's kind of a great recap because that's exactly what the fund community is about, founders investing in founders. And you know, it's been such a just joy to be part of this community and like see it grow and see people truly kind of supporting each other, you know, and this feeling of like, we can all be successful together rather than the alternate idea, which is that there's some sort of competitive element and that founders are competing for limited resources. I agree with you. And I always say, you know, it's one of the few professions where like, it's not a career choice, like being a founder is a life choice, you know, and especially like, you know, I have two young boys under nine, so it's even more challenging, you know, and so I give my wife all the credit in the world. She's the only reason I can do this. She's amazing. But really, I look at this and I was like, if you're in this life choice, you know, and you have other like minded people, like, just help them. And that's why I'm always active on the fun slack, you know, like even last week, someone brought something up around, you know, potentially having adding a board member, what they should do, they weren't part of the preferred, what should we and then like, I'm commenting on that. People are commenting back and forth. And like, you see a thousand members on there. I think it's fantastic. You know, and like, these are the things where, you know, if they haven't gone through it, like, who do you ask? You can't ask your investors. You, you probably don't, you know, haven't gone through it yet. And so it's like, if you have a trusted community that you can reach out to, like, that's fantastic. And like the same way I was able to pay it forward this time, like 10 years ago, I was asking those same questions, right? The difference is we didn't have this community back then, you know? And so it's been really great to see it evolve. And it's also been really great to see it evolve here in LA. You know, I think the last 10 years, LA is just blossom, which has been fantastic to see. It's pretty incredible what's happened in LA. I agree. And I'm just, I'm thrilled. We've kind of managed to keep the community, you know, element and keep the tone of the community just so supportive as, it, as the ecosystem has grown. 
Um, and, you know, and you've been such a massive contributor. So thank you both on the fun side and Appreciate the LA tech community. Like you really kind of walk the walk. So thanks for all you bring Appreciate to the community. It. All right. Let's wrap up with a speed round. Okay. Um, let's do it. All right. I need a new book recommendation. Tell me or, or what book you're reading, podcast you're enjoying. I just finished. It's not because it's the marketplace, but I read Cold Star Problem, the Andrew Chen book. Fantastic. I mean, it's it's amazing. Like all the different marketplaces, like he talks about Instagram, where you like you come for the product and you stay for the network. It kept resonating with me where it's like originally it came for like that photo filter. And now the majority don't even use it anymore. And it's really about the network. So like it was truly fascinating to read that one. So I would, if you haven't done it, like highly recommend Cold Star Problem. Love that. Great recommendation. If you could live anywhere in the world for one year, where would you go? Oh, wherever my wife picks. That's easy. <laughs> Come on. It's, it's, it's 100% the right answer. I mean, I would probably pick Italy, but yeah, wherever she wants. <laughs> Love it. Um, all right. What's your favorite productivity hack? Uh, I would say early morning. So I get up at like between four and five every day and especially with kids. So like that five to seven or four 30 to seven hour, couple hours be when no one is up, like that is my hack. So you'll see like a ton of emails and stuff come out during that time. Cause it's like my time with no one else. And I just, I, I kind of feel like I get a headed start on everybody. Love it. Love it. I'm an early riser too. I grew up playing hockey. So I was like getting up at four 30 in the morning. So. Oh, that's an amazing discipline. Okay. I'm sure people want to get in touch with you. Uh, where can our listeners find you on socials? Yeah, I'm not. Listen, I have some investors and some friends who are extremely active on Twitter. Um, I'm not super active on Twitter. I am on Twitter. I am on LinkedIn. The one, one thing I will say is I'm super responsive. So whether it's like through the fun Slack to begin with, like, I, you know, you can see me if you, if you Slack me directly, I always respond on Twitter, on LinkedIn, send me a message. Like I'm super responsive. I may not be the uh, most opinionated one on Twitter, but I'm always there. So just, just draw me a line anytime. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Steve. Thanks for a great conversation. Awesome. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks, fun. Thanks everybody. Thanks for joining us and hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you listening, you might also be interested to learn about Everywhere. We're a first check pre-seed fund that does exactly that. We invest everywhere. We're a community of 500 founders and operators, and we've invested in over 250 companies around the globe. Find us at our website, everywhere.vc, on LinkedIn, and through our regular founder spotlights on Substack. Be sure to subscribe, and we'll catch you on the next episode.